Welcome, guys, to the Texture Lounge. Today, we're talking about social injustice, police brutality, and change in America. I have two great guests joining me to discuss these issues. Here with me in the lounge, one of them you'll be familiar with, Diallo Brooks, who is a social justice champion and activist who works at People for the American Way. Um, he has some very strong and solid um, opinions uh, to share about this topic today. We are welcoming him back to the lounge because he did feature a few episodes ago where we talked all things COVID-19. So that's Diallo Brooks. And also we have a black police officer, Dave, joining us in the lounge to speak from the perspective of a black police officer. Now, if I'm really honest, I had no faith that I was able to get a black cop to join me in the lounge to discuss these very, very difficult issues that we're facing here in the States. So I'm really grateful for a friend of mine who you know, connected us and um, really happy that we're able to have this super honest conversation with Diallo and Dave today. So sit back and I know it's difficult to relax into a conversation like this, but be open-minded and let's get this conversation going. Thank you guys for joining me in the lounge today. This is a very important topic, a very relevant topic today. Introduce yourselves, who you are, your upbringings, um, and what you do today. Let's kick off with uh, Diallo. All right. Uh, I'm Diallo Brooks, uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C., um, I work for an organization called People for the American Way. Um, we're a social justice uh, nonprofit organization that works on a lot of issues, national issues, um, around protecting democracy, um, uh, around a lot of the social issues that we are all facing, um, organizing various communities from elected officials, some young elected officials, to young people. Um, to some African-American ministers. Um, and then we also have on our C4 side uh, uh, about 1.5 million uh, members uh, of the organization and just working to you know, protect our democracy, push back against some of the extreme uh, right-wing Trump-esque voices that are out there. <laughs> and a little bit about your background and upbringing, Diallo, just to get the, our listeners into, into your household almost. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So um have a family that's been involved in social justice for a long time. A mother uh, has been engaged in some of that work. Um, also has played a quasi-law enforcement role as, you know, running one of our, our uh, the organization here in D.C. that deals with uh, our returning citizens and, and handling all of the returning citizens, which is actually a federal agency. Um, she's the former uh, director of that. And it, if you know anything about D.C., D.C., uh, uh, has, has because of our relationship with the federal government and not being a state, um, all of our um, our systems, uh, particularly for returning citizens, most of them go into the federal system, and so um, the federal government has a role of controlling um, those folks that that return. And so she ran uh, CSOSA, which is the agency that, that 
uh, deals with the returning citizens for years. And also she's used to work at the Justice Department for years. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, worked on social justice. I'm a husband, have uh, three beautiful children, uh, 19, 17, and 13. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing this work pretty much all of my life. Uh, it's a political science major coming out of college. And so, you know, just want to make my mark making sure that the world is a better place for my kids um, and future generations. I hear that. And Dave, tell us a little bit about you, your background, your upbringing, what you do today. Sure. Uh, my name is, well, just call me Dave. Uh, I currently am a police officer. I've been in law enforcement for 22 years. Uh, I work in the uh, tri-state area of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and uh, Maryland. I actually grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, lived in the county, but spent a lot of time in the city of Baltimore. That's where all my family resided at. I uh, went to private school, K through eight, which was a Catholic school. Then I went to an all-boy all high school within the city of Baltimore. And then I went to college. I actually thought about going into political science at one point because I was I'm very intrigued in politics, honestly. But uh, I decided to do sociology. Became a social worker with foster children for a year. Then I moved on to the, the police department, where I felt like I could be a little bit more hands-on with uh, helping people. My mother and father they grew up in Baltimore City. During the segregation times, my mom walked on D.C. and saw Martin Luther King give his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, she worked for the for the government for 35 years, Social Security. And my father, when he was a young man, he joined the Marine Corps out of high school, fought in Vietnam, came home, worked as a uh, tool and die maker, and then uh, some other odd jobs. So as a police officer, I've worked as a detective patrol officer. I've trained police officers. I worked in community service where we go out and we uh, mingle with the community, with the children, with the families. I actually retired from my uh, job after 21 years, going on 22 years, and now I work at a very small police department and uh, trying to do the same thing I did before I left my uh, prior, police, uh, prior police department. And I have a 21-year-old daughter. <laughs> Dave, thank you for your intro. And again, for being here today to have an honest conversation about, um, you know, this topic as it pertains to, you know, social justice and what that looks like um, in the light of all the police brutality that's happening. So we thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, Diallo, what inspired you to get into the world of social justice? I mean, you've given us a little bit of background, so we know that, you know, your mother was was involved. Um, was that the inspiration point for you, or was there something else? Um, I, that, that was part of my the inspiration. Um, a lot of the conversations in my household coming up around, like, during Thanksgiving, I used to like to hang around at the grown-ups table when they were talking politics and... <laughs> all the stuff that was going on in the world. So that was always something of interest to me. Yeah. Um, my, my great, great grandmother, um, Maggie Walker was the first woman and, um, first woman and first black person to, uh, found uh, a bank 
Um, and, you know, she has her houses run by the Park Service, um, the National Park Service uh, down in Richmond, Virginia. And she just uh, a few years ago um, had a monument uh, erected right on the main street down in Richmond, Virginia. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Her. So, so seeing that kind of stuff kind of got the juices flowing early on. But, you know, it, it's always something that's been kind of in my blood um, mm-hmm. that I was, you know, interested in. And so going to college, um, majoring in political science, and then folks kind of, you know, I went to a predominantly white college. Um, and so in order to kind of get stuff done on campus that I wanted to get done, um, I had to be much more uh, active and involved because um, there weren't a lot of things outside of, you know, I played sports, so outside of basketball <laughs> that, you know, were reflective. <laughs> so in order to make those changes, I had to be much more involved. So it, it kind of just continue to get my juices flowing from there and then been just doing it ever since. And in your words, what does it actually mean to be a true champion for social justice? <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it takes on various forms. I mean, you know, right. I don't feel like in order to be a champion for social justice, folks, you know, have to do it exactly the way I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at it as somebody who's really, you know, engaged and involved in making sure that we make this world a better place, um, that is that we are fighting for equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be a champion of that means, uh, you know, elevating your voice um, where necessary, um, allowing other voices to be heard in the conversation um, and really pushing for change, even when it's difficult um, around the systems that, you know, don't. Uh, take us in that direction. So, you know, being a champion for it can be many different things. Some folks protest, some folks write, some folks, mm-hmm. um, you know, engage in, in, in activities within their community, some folks mentor, mm-hmm. um, some folks, you know, provide opportunities through business. Um, so there's a lot of different lanes in which you, you, you can be a, a champion of it, but it's really, it's something that has to be in your heart, no matter what profession you're in, that you're you're looking to do what's right um, and really elevate and uplift folks um, to allow folks to be the best that they can be um, and also be who they are in that process. I think it's really great that you mentioned the fact that it takes different lanes. You know, there isn't just one track or one path to be, you know, to show or to demonstrate the fact that one is a, a true champion for social justice because, as we spend a lot of time now on social media, keeping up to date with what's going on in the world or here in the US, uh, which effectively is affecting the world. Um, you know, there is that, there's almost a shaming that's going on in terms of, oh, so-and-so didn't come with me to riot. Sorry, I say riot. <laughs> to to <laughs> protest. <laughs> definitely, definitely not riot. That was, uh, that was a Freudian slip. That was a Freudian <laughs> slip. We'll have to see if I want to edit that out or not. Um <laughs> No, but, you know, there is a shaming that's happening. You know, there is a pointing of fingers to say, oh, so-and-so didn't, you know, post up a black square on Blackout Tuesday or so-and-so, you know, did not, you know, come with me to to protest or so-and-so didn't sign that uh, petition. And they're essentially saying that by not doing those things, you're not standing um, against these injustices and you're not a true social, um, you know, a champion for social justice. But to your point, you have to do what's in your heart, what you're led to do. And it's not the same for everybody. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of it is there's, there are different lanes in which to do this work. 
um, depending on who you are and how you approach it. Um, but there's also, you know, the deadly kind of silence of folks or the deafening silence of folks um, yeah. as well. Um, I'm not too into like, you know, kind of the call out culture um, myself personally. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are folks that do sit on the sidelines and, and, and don't participate at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and it depends on, 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 you know, their motives and perspectives, but um you know, in a in a struggle that we're in right now, and the way the country is right now, uh, the silence is deafening. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it is something that we want to see folks, you know, step up in whatever way that they are able to step up. Like I said, there's there's a lot of different ways mm-hmm. in which you can step up, um, but just sitting down on the sidelines is also uh, part of you know why we have some of the problems that we have today. Yeah, exactly. Being complicit. Just as we're talking about um, what it means to be a police in this day and age or a police officer in this day and age, um, along with what's, you know, what the killings um, that have been happening. I'm very curious to understand your point of view. You mentioned that you have kids, um, three beautiful children uh, who are no longer children. (laughs) Um, What would you say if one of your children told you that they wanted to become a police officer? How would you feel about that today? I mean, you know, I have friends that are police officers. I have, you know, people I know uh, that are police officers. I've been around folks in the law enforcement profession. So I don't necessarily have this this visceral, um, uh, I guess, feeling toward, you know, law enforcement, you know, for the folks individually. Yeah. Um, it's not something that I necessarily, uh, you know, because of, because of a lot of different factors, not just because of what we're seeing, you know, on the news, but also because of, you know, the dangers of the, the profession itself. Mm-hmm. Um, not something that I say, Hey, you know, y'all should become law enforcement <laughs> folks, but you know, I, from, with my kids, I mean, I, I believe that they have to make their own decisions about the direction that they want to go in life as they get older mm-hmm. i just try to give them information and make sure that they go into those conversations with their eyes um wide open i think you know given the current environment you know one of the things i've always said as it relates to some of the some of what we've been talking about uh recently is um some of this systemic issues that i see uh are go beyond individuals and it's a lot of it um is uh systemic Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of the issues also go beyond police themselves. I mean, they go into areas of, uh, of elected officials. It goes into, you know, what we, you know, as a community feel about what safe and healthy communities should look like, how we intervene, um, like how we, you know, look to police to handle situations that um, sometimes seem outside of what they should be doing necessarily. Um, and so, like I said, you know, dealing with my kids, you know, having them have their eyes wide open into whatever direction they want to go into. I'm just not the type of parent that says, no, you can't do this or no, yeah. you shouldn't do this. Um, just want to give them good information, um, let them know what they're getting into and also let them know, you know, I'm not a police officer, so I can't speak from firsthand knowledge of being a police officer, but I also know enough 
about the profession to know the environments that they're going to be operating within and, you know, whether they're able to, to stay righteous mm -hmm. <laughs> as they do that, that work is, you know, not everybody can do as we've seen. <laughs> Fair point. And so, Dave, let's let's hear from the police officer that we have on the call on that particular point. Do you resonate with anything that Diallo just said? Well, my my daughter, I've been a police officer her, her whole entire life. When she was born, I was in the in the police academy, so she's seen the way I live. She's seen, you know, the hard shifts. You know, not being home for birthdays and cookouts. You know, sometimes you know you miss funerals you miss weddings mm -hmm. but uh she's seen the stress and every everybody is different every parent is different but i mean honestly for my child because i know her i would tell her don't be a police officer you know because being a police officer it takes a certain that you know what we say thick skin mm -hmm. so you would come across people and you would know They'll talk to you and say, "Hey, you know what? I'm thinking about joining the police department." And you know, and I was, you know, I would say many times, "I don't know. That may not be the job for you because I know what kind of person they are. You know, then I might meet someone else, mm -hmm. or know their their child, and they'll talk about wanting to be a police officer. And knowing that that person, I'll say, you know what? You'd be a great police officer, or you'll be a great cop, right? Because like uh, on Diallo's end, it is." the lower end of being a fighter for social justice. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of people probably don't realize that, but being a police officer is a way of fighting for social justice. And the way we do it as police officers is how we try to keep the peace. And we make sure that everybody has, you know, plays fair. Like if something simple, if at 8 o'clock at night somebody's blasting their radio and their neighbors got kids and trying to put their babies to sleep, you know, they'll call the police and the police will come out and we'll knock on the neighbor's door and say, hey, do you mind turning your radio down is late? Your neighbor's trying to put their kids to sleep. So, you know, these these are, that, that's a simple thing that we do to try to make sure everybody has, you know, fairness, that they have, uh, you know, a way to live without someone else impeding on their on their life you know what police do is make sure everybody has the ability to live and not for someone to impede on their life you know and so so, so to your to that point what do you say about those police officers that stand by and watch george floyd being sat on in terms of you know knee on neck and and don't do anything about it. If we're really talking, and I know it's a good cop, there are good cops, there are bad cops, we understand that. But like what what do you say when you see sites like that when effectively, to your point, you know, police are supposed to be fighting for justice? Right. Well, what you're asking is something we talk about pretty much every day at the police departments. You know, I know in my police department we talk about it. Um some of my old co-workers have called me and we've talked about it. There really is no clear answer because you, it's my understanding that a couple, a couple of the guys were brand new. Um, I haven't really researched it, but they were following, they were following behind this older cop that was, you know, the one that killed Mr. Floyd. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really hard. It's, it's hard for me to put myself in that situation, but I know what I would do. I would say, hey, 
trying to, you know, let's turn them over. All right, that's enough. You know, get off of them. Mm-hmm. Relax. You know, but I can't really vouch for what they did, but I can tell you what I would do. And right. the guys that I work with, we would say, all right, that's enough. Mm. You know, uh, and, you know, every there's training. Certain departments train more than other departments. Certain departments have different types of uh, sensitivity training or, medical, you know, CPR training, what to look for if somebody's on drugs and how to handle that. You know, you, 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 in, in certain departments, they hammer it into you. And I belong to those departments where they hammered it into you. And you know you're not there to hurt people. Right. You're there to help people. Even if you have to restrain someone, you're only going to do it to the point where you're like, I'm not trying to hurt this person. Right. So, I mean, you know, I only can tell you what I was trained and what my counterparts would do. And we wouldn't do that. And and I'm going to tell you, those guys on those lines where the people are protesting, they don't believe in that. I know most of them do not believe in that. And they'd rather probably be on the side with the protesters. <laughs> but we we got we to gotta put the uniform on and, you know, we get paid to do a job, you know. But honestly, when you talk to us, we'd rather be on the other side, you know. You'd rather be on the side of the protesters. Because we understand. We don't agree, you know. Right. That's we don't why- agree. And that's why, because I know you and I had a, you know, a conversation maybe a week or so ago now, and uh, I really got a sense from what you did share with me that you, you truly do believe that, like you truly do see yourselves on the on the on the side of the protesters as it pertains to this conversation. So important to note that for the listeners. And if I can say, I want to remind you know, people that police officers get into the job because they want to protect people. You know, you, you will have bad seeds and people may do things, you know, sometimes on purpose, sometimes inadvertently, but the majority of us, we do this job because we want to protect people, you know, because we could lose our life in the course of it. Is that what so. inspired you to become a police officer? I wasn't really thinking about losing my life part. <laughs> I mean, obviously not that part. <laughs> but, you know, I... I, I genuinely, I genuinely, genuinely like to help people. That's why I used to be. I was a social worker before I became a police officer, and I felt like, you know what, I can't help the way I want to. So, you know, police work had always been in the back of my mind mm-hmm. when I was young. Um, you know, of course, most people are like, you don't want to do that. It's a dangerous job. You know, like I would tell my daughter, you don't want to do that. You know, my mom and I told her I wanted to be a police officer because she kind of shook, mm-hmm. but. You know, I wanted to help people, and I didn't want to work in the office. I wanted to be out with people. I like to, to socialize with people, um, and it's been rewarding for me, so I'm, I'm glad I did it. And what do you wish you knew before you started your career as a police officer? Well, I wish I knew 2020 was coming. <laughs> but, uh, uh, don't, don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, I, I wish, like, uh, Diallo was saying, you know, with the politics, like yeah. there are some things that are beyond the police department. Yeah, for sure. Because I started at such a young age, I wish I knew more about how politics played into what the police departments do. Mm. You know, we we shadow what the government tells us to do. So I wish, you know, if I knew that more, maybe when I was younger, I could have been doing more things, advanced myself as a supervisor, where I could start making more department.
developmental policies, you know. And essentially, do you get a sense of that's how change will happen within the force, getting more black um, good cops into the force and elevating them up the ranks? Do you see change happening that way? Um, I, I don't know if it has to be necessary just black officers. I think it what we see right now is just people beginning to create a true community. You know, when you look at the people protesting, um, you see different races, you know, different ethnicities, and they're all they're all out there for the same cause. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's there's areas that I heard about where normally you think of maybe the KKK, mm-hmm. you know, breeding their their groups of people. Yeah, they're white people with no black people fighting for you know fighting for black lives, picking them. You know, so it's just I think we all can come together, you know, and we do need more black people, men and women, advancing themselves into these ranks of police officers, politicians, you know, more activists. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think we we started off in the 60s moving that way and then maybe we got, you know, complacent. But I think we need to pick back up and we need to start moving forward again advancing ourselves yeah i want to talk a little bit more about um you know the identity side of things um dave this is again for you do you identify more strongly with one being a black man in america or two being a police officer do you lean into one more than the other and um how does this influence how you do your job and i ask this because obviously you have a dedicated commitment to being um, a police officer that protects um, the community. But at the same time, you as a black man are seeing what's happening and how our lives as black individuals in the U.S. are seen as, um, you know, less than human. How does that affect your job on a day-to-day basis? Well, it's kind of like that old uh, adage when, you know, your mom says, when you leave this house, you represent this family, you know. Yeah. Your last name, that's my last name. That's your dad's last name. That's your grandparents' last mm. name. That's, you know, when you leave here, people are going to look at you and they're going to think whatever you do, that's how the rest of us act. Right. That's what we believe. So those kind of things always stuck with me. So being a black man is what I'm going to always be. You know, one day I'm going to retire from being a police officer completely I might go into gardening but I'm always be a black man and I'm always remember my history where I came from mm. and how how I was brought here but now that I'm here I look at those men uh, that were freed from slavery and how they became pioneers to advance black people becoming soldiers civil war soldiers uh, World War II you know Tuskegee Airmen, you know, um, scientists, you know, the, the women that helped NASA, you know, with bringing the satellite out into space and back, and back to Earth, you know, these these kind of people, they made advancements for the rest of us. And I feel as a black man, as a police officer, I am in that, in, on that list, in that, in that bracket where I'm saying, you know what? 
I was able to become a police officer because everybody can't be a police officer, you know. Right. And I work in, you know, I've worked in majority uh, white police departments, and that's important. That's important. And you know, one time when I was younger, when I was younger, I was uh, going to we'll, we'll say a Sunny Eleven, and an older black gentleman, probably like in his late sixties, going to the seventies, had stopped me as I'm going to the store. He said. Young man, I never seen a black police officer before, mm. and he was proud of me. And uh, at the time, I was kind of blown away. But you know, now that I'm older, there are places across this country where black people haven't seen a black police officer before. Right. So you know, yes, you know, we have been oppressed, you know, in certain ways. Not like the older years, but now, you know, with things from, uh, let's say, the political side with, you know, resources that need to be financed to help people get out of certain, you know, ruts in their life. We are we are held back, you know, and that's why it's good to have, you know, Diallo out there, you know, pointing these things out. Mm-hmm. But I feel I have honor. I feel honored that I'm able to be in this uniform and go out there and, and try to make a difference. And when white people, Asian people, when they see me, they can say, you know what, maybe black men are like him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I know this next question might sound, um, you know, there's probably an obvious answer, but I would love to hear it from, you know, from your own words. But how does it make you feel when you see and when you hear, um, you know, the Ahmad Aubrey's the George Floyds, the Breonna Taylors being killed senselessly. Like, what is the feeling that goes through you when you hear and, you know, see these these ridiculous incidents taking place or murders taking place? It's very heinous. It's um, very emotional. Scary. Mm. You know, because if I'm not in my uniform... And I'm riding through, you know, these places that I could travel through for vacation. You know, that could happen to me. You know, something could happen. Um, so you but, even fear your your own life as a black man without the uniform when you go out there? Well, I don't, per se, I don't fear for my life. But you always know that there's a possibility. Now, you know, for me, the way I am, I always feel like I can handle myself, you know, being yeah. a police officer, you go through all different things. So for me, I feel like I, I can handle situations, but, you know, I have friends that are not police officers. You know, like I said, I'm from, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, and I've had friends that had, you know, experiences. I have a cousin that had, that told me about the experience that he had and it blew my mind, you know, and I know they're out there and it's just, um, we have to do better. Mm-hmm. We have to do better, and I, I think we just have to work harder. And you know, it's, it's, it, it tears me up when we when I saw what happened to George Floyd. You know, I, I trembled because mm-hmm. we literally got to see this man die on TV. Yeah, and a, and a man that you know does is supposed to do what I'm what I do. You know, it's it's hard for me to go out. You know, I used to walk outside happy, you know, proud to wear my uniform to get in my car. Many of us are afraid to go outside in uniform because you feel like, you know what, like a target because you're a bad person. Yeah. You know, we know we're not, but, you know, it, it takes strength. 
these periods. So one of the very common conversations that happens in um, African-American households, um, probably even more now as, as, you know, as it pertains to the subject we're talking about, is the talk. So I'm curious, Diallo, have you ever had the talk with, um, with the kids? And what does it sound like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if you're black in this country, it's irresponsible not to have that conversation with your children. I mean, you have a conversation about so much Yeah. Um, that are important if you're responsible as a parent or if you're, you know, just if you're generally aware as a parent, mm-hmm. um, having those kind of conversations with your children um, to make sure that they return home safely to you is is important. The conversation is just about, you know, being aware, one, being aware of your surroundings, being aware of who you are, you know, if you're approached in a certain situation, you know, to remember to keep yourself calm, uh, not to to move suddenly, uh, not to give excuses to, to have somebody react mm-hmm. um, to, to your... Um, to your movements, even though it, it may be totally innocent movements. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, just keep your cool in a situation. It's hard to, you know, talk about it sometimes because it's one of those things that's unfortunate that you even have to have a conversation because yeah. I've, you know, around white folks that, you know, I work with or that I know that, you know, the conversation about race in this country and, 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 and it, it boils on the race. It's like policing, but it's also race. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like this double-edged sword thing that, you know, and I've had colleagues or, you know, friends talking about, yeah, you know, I don't need, you know, I really don't want to talk to my kids about some of that stuff right now. I don't want them exposed. But like as a black father, as a black parent, it's like, yo, I have to prepare my kids for everything because, it's just the world we live in. I, I know my experiences. Like I said, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, I graduated high school in 1990. Washington, D.C. was murder capital of the world. Um, you know, in that you have um, increased police interaction with communities, um, no matter what neighborhood you're from. Uh, mm. um, you know, and traveling around. And like I said, I went to college in, in West Virginia, and so, you know, just driving between D.C. and West Virginia, knowing some of the interactions that I've had, you know, totally innocent, didn't do anything wrong, you yeah. know, interactions that I've had. And, you know, being on that dark road by yourself, nobody's around. Like, how do you handle yourself in those situations? And so, you know, like I said, it's, it's a little frustrating because, like, a lot of white folks that I talk to, they don't even it doesn't even it's not even front of mind to even have those conversations. The history of black folks in this country, you know, uh, just like Dave said before, it, you know, it, you know, the history, we understand our history. We understand where we came from. We understand, you know, our responsibilities to our families, but we also understand, you know, the road that we've traveled to get to where we are now, to have the privilege to do what I do right now, mm-hmm. um, to have a privilege of even seeing black folks in uh, police uniforms now. Like, there's privileges with that, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, that some of our ancestors didn't have. Um, but even with that, we're, we're understanding that history and understanding that the struggle for equality are, you know, and I like to say even more equity than just equality. Yeah. Um, um, the struggle for that in this country is still real. Um, you know, 
And like I said, you know, even, you know, having a conversation with the kids is one thing, but even knowing, like having friends that are, in, you know, in, uh, you know, that are police or, you know, law enforcement officers, it's like, there's still this reality that exists um, that has an overlay of race that impacts everyone's lives. I mean, I, I was, I have a, a show that I do with some of my friends and we just started this live with the fellas that we do. Uh, we've been doing weekly um, Facebook live zoom nice. um, show that we do. And we've had a couple of police officers and one of my, you know, one of the guys that was on, you know, talked about how it is just being black within the police department, that the rules are not exactly the same for him as it is for other, you know, off for other, some of his white colleagues. Mm. Um, and, and, and so knowing that information and the folks that I talk to family members that are in law enforcement, you know, knowing that information, you know, knowing that everybody ain't going to come to you with the same righteous, or they're not going to look at you the same way, you know, particularly depending on whatever kind of experiences that they've had, you know, interacting with our community as a whole anyway, and other biases that they might have in their own minds, Mm -hmm. um, as they interact with folks from our community. So, like, you know, making a long story longer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good kids, stuff. It's, okay. Yeah, you know, like with the kids, it's just, you know, like understand the world. You, I, my, my big thing with my kids is like, you just got to understand the world. Like, I, I don't try to sugarcoat the world um, because, you know, they ha- you have to interact in this world. And the more prepared you are, the better you're able to handle uh, situations that you're confronted with. Um, and so giving them as much information and as many tools as possible to make sure that they're safe and also understanding that some things are not right. And that's why we do what we have to do to change those systems, um, that are not right, um, in order to make sure that our lives are, you know, safe and secure as we, you know, as we kind of matriculate throughout the world. And what about for you, Dave, does the conversation or does, does the talk sound a little different? to Diallo's, for example, because you're a police officer, or is it pretty much the same? Well, the talk is somewhat the same as Diallo and his his family. Um, He probably had to tell his kids things a little bit earlier than I did Um, because my daughter, you know, going through high school and grade school, I pretty much knew everybody. Everybody knew me. Um, But as she gets older and now she wants, you know, she went to California last year in the mm. summer and i was like hey hey we need to talk <laughs> <laughs> so because you know she get you know she's 16 she get the license you know the kids get the license you know and they can drive uh we got her you know we got her car she was starting to go you know she went to college and she had to you know go out of state not a real long ride but she would commute so i first had a you know a talk with her about you know watch your speed you know you gotta be careful you know, with everybody, but you don't want to get pulled over. I said, just try to keep the chances of getting pulled over down to a minimum. All right. But, you know, I've told her, hey, you get stopped by a police officer. Be very cooperative, polite. Um, make sure your hands remain stirring well. Let, let him tell you or she tell you what they want you to do. Okay. If you feel comfortable enough to say your father's a police officer, you can. And that's, that's, a benefit that, you know, law enforcement officers have with their kids. You know, they can say, hey, here's here's my business card. Somebody stopped you. Hand them my business card with your license, you know. But it doesn't mean that you'd be able to get some kind of privilege. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the further away you are, the further away your child is from where you work at, there's less chance that's going to work. Okay. okay? But um, my daughter, she wants to travel and she went to California. And I said, listen, don't be wearing no red. Don't be wearing no blue. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, don't be speeding. I said, listen, I said, don't be wearing no red. Don't be wearing no blue because of the gang. Games. And that's yeah. Don't be out there acting silly, you know, drawing attention to yourself where the police are going to come and they're going to want to talk to you. I said, be yourself. Which, and she's a very, you know, she's a very, she's very well managed. You know, she's, she's very contained. Mm-hmm. But you still got to make sure because when kids go away from you, you know, I know I wasn't the way I, you know, I, I know I changed when I went with my friends. Even the day I tell my mom's stories and she's like, say what? But, um, <laughs> You know, you you, know, you worry about your children. Yeah, of course. You know, and, you, and, and you know what the real world is about. Even now that she's uh, 21, you know, I tell her when she's driving within our within where I work, I say, hey, I don't know these these new guys on the police department. You know, there's a, they're a different breed of guys, some of them. I said, look, get stopped. Do what he says. Be Again, be cooperative. Be polite. Mm-hmm. Because you know, people don't like when you sassy, you know, and unfortunately, you know, people are people, right? So you get a cop on a bad day, maybe he's going through something at home or you know, he got in trouble at work, but don't want to give anybody a reason to take it further than they have to. Okay. So yes, she gets to talk. <laughs> she gets to talk too. So regardless of uh whether you are a police officer, parent or not, everybody gets to talk. Everybody yeah. gets to talk. So um, Diallo alluded to it earlier on, you know, he gave us um, the the visual or the example of some of the, you know, conversations he has with his fellas, um, you know, and had some police officers join those conversations as well. And um, it sounded like Diallo, if I heard you correctly, that, you know, your police officer friend also shared examples of, you know, the fact that there is racial bias that happens within the police force between, you know, how the rules apply to black officers um, versus white officers. Um, Dave, I'm curious to know if you have seen firsthand any racial microaggressions or, you know, fully flashed aggressions in the police department. Yeah, I think the most common thing would probably be, you know, stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're young, you know, especially when you're a young officer coming into a, the police department, uh, there are general stereotypes about you just because, you know, you're black, you know, so maybe you don't write reports as well, or maybe you don't, mm-hmm. uh, you can't figure out, you know, the solution for something as, as well as the next person, you know, as, as your counterpart, or maybe you're not, you're not going to be a good leader or a good driver, you know, there there are things that we have to do a little bit harder than our counterpart. But we, we know this, like Diallo said, you know, we know this from our, from our history and what we have to go through. I mean, they had to create the civil bill of rights for us so that we could become police officers. But, um, you know, it's, it's there, but I think again, you have to be strong. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you share these stories, you know, and you tell young people that these things we're fighting against and, and uh, they're becoming less and less. And we need more of you guys to get into these positions, into these jobs, because once enough of us are in it, eventually it's going to have to go away. 
you know. That's how you break but, down um, the system bit by bit. Right. But we, we can't run it. We can't say, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be bothered. No, we got to do it. Right. Or else we'll be protesting for years to come. <laughs> yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that. Yeah. So, Dave, talk a little bit about the headhunting that does happen, right? So as it pertains to, you know, guns, drugs, and all the stereotyping and quotas, right? Well, I'm going to say it's like a two-system thing. So the first, when when people in the public look at the police departments and they say, oh, are you, are you going to get a commission for writing me a ticket? You know, I've been asked that. Are, do you get a commission or do you guys got quotas? So what it basically is, is that, you know, every job you get an evaluation, right? Some people get it once a year, every so many months, quarterly. Mm-hmm. With police officers, we be we're, we we get we get evaluated on our productivity, you know, because we're getting you know just like anybody else, you get paid to do a job, you're getting paid to do a service, and because we're public servants, you know, taxpayer money is what pays me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to show my job that yes, I pulled over a car today, or you know, I made a contact with somebody, I just I stopped and talked to them, or I made an arrest. So. There's that type of quota system where, you know, each department has their own way of categorizing numbers and, you know, averages. But then there's also, uh, you know, when you go out, let's say, uh, an area that has heavy crime, you know, um, to, you know, specialized units normally go out in these areas and do, you know, a little bit more digging and stopping people. And uh, the problem, I think, with for the public and also the police department is that we get in such a groove and you get in such a rhythm that everything becomes suspicious. Mm. Uh, and again, a, a lot of things we, we shadow from the government. So if politicians are like, I need you to clean, I need the department to clean up that neighborhood. I made promises to my constituents and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a lot that we have to handle and deal with that a lot of people don't know, but mm. we, we have to, you know, stop crime. And sometimes, you know, to keep you in the unit, you might have to get so many arrests a month or, you know, you have, you have to clear so many investigations. And sometimes it can become like, you know, a numbers game. Yeah. You know, it's like a vicious cycle. So, right. And it's, and there's nothing I don't think that we do purposely is just, Again, yes, like the, it's a part of the cycle. And I think at this point with all this talk of reform, we need to take a pause and, and, and look at all these things, start breaking them down, you know. Well, and, uh, I'm, I'm glad you out. said that because then, you know, we're, we're, that, that would be the perfect segue to um, police reform, which is a topic that I wanted to talk to both of you about. But, you know, just before we move into that, that uh, particular subject, just on the quota system and the productivity goals that you just touched on, like surely there has to be a better way of showing officer productivity, right? Because I mean, sure, I'm an outsider. I don't know what's really going on in there. You have the insight more than I do for sure. But if officers are being charged with, um, you know, to, you know, ticket X number of individuals by a certain time frame or in a certain given um, um, time frame the bias applies, right? Like we're seeing that um, a lot of the individuals that are being pulled over for a broken taillight, whatever it is, they are, you know, people of color. They are black individuals, um, 
disproportionately. Mm-hmm. So surely there has to be a different way of, you know, gauging whether an officer is doing his job or not. And it's not really a question. It's, it's more a statement, um, but would love to understand a bit more of what your point of view is on that. Do you think that there could be change in that department? Well, here, here's the thing. Um, so we're looking at the high density, the areas of high density, you know, where, where most of the population is at, which is going to be in your cities, right? And yeah. most of the cities across America are going to be majority, you know, populated by black people. So, you know, then we'd say, okay, we're in a city you have, you know, low income and uh, you have people that can't afford to keep, you know, their vehicle up or, you know, you know, their money, they're low on money, they're strapped. So they can only put their money in either this or that, right? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, we give them people tickets and then they can't pay the fine. Then they get, you know, they have a warrant for their arrest because they didn't pay their fine and mm-hmm. so on. So, you know, but you still have to fight crime because a lot of things we do as far as stopping cars, that's how we find guns, drugs. I mean, I've known people to stop cars and find, you know, deceased people in the car, you know, in the trunk. I mean, unfortunately, we live in a, in a society where there is, you know, a high crime rate. So we have to be able to balance it. We have to figure out a way to balance it. And that's why it's important that the community, you know, every department serves their own community and each community is different from, you know, the, the, the neighboring community. You know, what police officers do in New York isn't going to be the same as what they do in New Mexico. Right. You know? so, so I think it's important, especially when we have, you know, activists, uh, you know, when we have activist type people or ministers, community leaders, it's important that they network with the police and the community to build or, you know, to outline what that community needs. That way there's an understanding of why we police the way we do, you know, because ultimately the police department works for the community. You know, we don't run the community, we work for the community. So I think we've kind of lost some things over the years and we have to just sit down and discuss these things, you know, because if if we have a high crime area, let's look at Chicago, right? We see like a few, Father's Day weekend, a hundred and some people were shot, 14 killed. Mm. You know, in Chicago itself. Yes, in the city of Chicago. So, you know, they require a certain type of policing, but that policing needs to also be, you know, understood. And you know, I guess you know, the community has to sit down with the police, the leaders, and say, "Look, this is what we got going on. This is what we need." You know, we get, you got to get the church involved. You got to get the politicians involved. You got to get resources to the people because we just can't say we're going to do this but not have no resources to give the people if we tell them, you know, you're always going to have an A and a B. You know, you just can't mm-hmm. throw one thing at people. You have to have a support system for them, you know. But uh, mass incarceration, putting people in jail for certain things, that's not that answer. People need resources, you know. You're giving me a perfect, perfect segue, Dave, to police reform, right? So I love what you say in terms of, you know, you do you as the you know the police department do rely on community leaders coming together activists coming together and detailing line by line what are the changes structural um necessary uh changes that need to happen in order for policing to be um way better than it is today so diallo open invitation i'm sure these are conversations you've had already or if not going to have but like what are the changes that you would like to see as it pertains to how policing um is structured in today's society 
Well, I mean, I, I'll go back to a, the, there's a couple of things that is really important, um, I think, for this conversation, because there's like, you know, I, you know, I have my own personal perspective, but there's a lot of conversations about defunding police. There's a lot of conversations. There's some conversations that are happening around abolition. Yeah, there's conversations <laughs> happening around reform. Um, so all of those things are out there in the ether. I think part of the conversation has to be, and it really goes back to something I said earlier, is that, you know, one, like, first first is like a really, uh, folks have to have a baseline historical understanding of policing, where it's come, where it came from, right? And so a lot of folks within the social justice space you know, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the history of policing, meaning post-slavery, you know, or even during slavery, how those individuals were used to keep, you know, black bodies in line um, and to, to, you know, really directed toward black folks, right? Um, particularly like post-slavery when folks were free, you know, you had plantation owners that didn't have that free labor anymore. Um, and mm -hmm. so like criminalizing being black, I mean, cause there were simple behaviors about, you know, looking in a certain direction or, yeah. or you know, yeah. so, so you have this history, you know, long before there were even black police officers um, mm -hmm. or, you know, a network of black police officers um, around the country. Um, and so you have these kind of like kind of systemic uh, things that exist within why policing was even, you know, created as a formalized structure um, was geared toward black folks. And if you even look throughout, you know, moving fast forward into the civil rights or from Jim Crow uh, through the civil rights movement, you see how the 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 relationship between community and police um, was a punitive relationship, right? And then you also see communities that were deprived of resources, um, which, you know, leads to, you know, potentially seeding uh, criminal behavior within within communities. And so, like, like I said earlier, it, it's also like the conversation about whether you want to call it reform or moving in a different direction or, you know, change, um, is about recognizing that, but also recognizing, and I think Dave made the point, like, what does the community need and want? Yeah. And I think too often in this conversation around policing, policing has always been something that was done to communities, not something that the communities necessarily, um, either had felt like they had the agency, um, particularly black communities. And when I say communities, I'm, I'm really talking about yeah, black communities sure. really never had the real agency um, even with some black elected officials, um, um, to really dictate what that should look like and how that should function and operate. I think also one of the larger problems, and that's why I said I, I get away from individual police officers. Yeah, they're, you know, bad act because a lot of folks on, you know, conservative folks on the extreme right like to say, well, you know, it's a one-off bad actor, but there's also like some systemic stuff that exists um, around how the community contact um, is treated. I mean, like I said, I you know we had an officer on. It was a friend of one of my uh, one of my boys. His friend, one of his friends, is a police officer that was on, and he was just talking about how you know policing in one jurisdiction is done so much that can be done totally differently than another jurisdiction. Um, I have another friend that's a mayor of a of a small city in New York. 
um, and talks about how they've implemented like psychological testing on the front end um, to and which has weeded out 75% of folks coming even into the mm. professional police because they just were not mentally ready to deal with even policing, just their, the biases that they bring. Um, you know, I've had conversations with police officers that said, you know, we go through training, and then as soon as I get in that squad car with a veteran police officer, the police officer tells me, okay, your new your training actually begins now. Um, meaning <laughs> we're gonna teach you, we're gonna teach you how to behave on the streets now. And, and you know, and one of them used the example of like, you know, a rookie police officer may have some biases, and in his words, not necessarily racist. I mean, I might argue that differently, but mm-hmm. you know, for 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 semantics you know, has some biases, but then put in the adversarial situations with the community. And so over time, it continues to build upon that bias because the information that that officer, that young white rookie police officer is given, um, stokes his fear because he wants to go home at night and he fears the, you know, the crazy black guy in the neighborhood, you know, shooting him, right? Mm -hmm. And so his, you know, senses are up as he deals with that community. And then in certain places, uh, you know, one of the officers was from Philadelphia and it's like, look, I can't police in the neighborhood I'm from because of, of the rules and policing for, you know, Philadelphia at the time where, when he was there. So, you know, so basically I'm, you know, policing in another neighborhood and I might personally have a community-based approach, but there's, you know, white folks that are not even from this community that don't even know this community, might be from the suburbs somewhere, um, and may have just even recently moved from another state, <laughs> coming mm-hmm. in there policing, you know, uh, black and brown folks. And so you've created like this hodgepodge of, of situations where there's adversary. And then also the community responds and, and converse too, because they are looking at every police officer as a potential threat. And so then you have fear on one side and fear on the other side. That's a powder right. keg waiting to explode. Um, secondarily, like I said, there's also, you know, we've moved even on the federal level, like, you know, under the Obama administration, you know, they they did this 21st century policing um, kind of work around, you know, some of it was around implicit bias trainings and and um, demilitarizing police departments and mm-hmm. all these things. And then you have fast forward to Trump where, you know, he's basically saying, hey, you know, it's okay if you knock some heads around. Like, and so there's different narratives that are playing out. And then like it like was mentioned, like Dave mentioned before, like I, I look at the Ferguson situation, you know, because we're talking about what's happening now, but let's just fast, let's let's just rewind a little bit to Ferguson and look at, you know, all of the kind of statutory um, violations that create uh, contact with police officers in ways that um, exacerbate the relationships between police and communities, right? Because, you know, you folks are having a warrant because they couldn't play a t- pay a ticket, right? Or pay some tickets. Yeah. Uh, and they can't afford to pay the tickets because they're low income. And then so you have this kind of, this snowballing effect. Because I think at Ferguson, it was this really high percentage of the population actually had warrants for uh, one reason or another because of failure to pay um, right. certain fines. Mm-hmm. And so like, and then, so you're, you're overlaying police to solve all of these problems. And so, you know, you got folks with mental health issues. I mean, one of the conversations around some of the changes, uh, like, you know, you have folks with mental health issues, right? Yeah. And so 
how do we say, okay, do we spend more money on folks that are able to actually respond, who are trained to respond to mental health crisis versus a police officer being the frontline person to respond in that situation? And then depending on where their training is, where they are in the country, how progressive or non-progressive that particular department is, and also how, you know, engage that particular officer is, you know, and in, in wanting to solve, you know, wanting to handle that situation with care, right? So we throw all of that into the policing mix. Um, also, we look at, you know, the contact that young people have within schools. I mean, there's situations where police officers are called for situations that may have been better handled within the school situation um, that doesn't, you know, exacerbate that relationship. Yeah. You know, and, and, and not, not to say that there's not problems that happen and, 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 you know, I'm not naive to say that <laughs> there's not situations where people are causing a certain level of problem and some, somebody that needs to be a fair arbiter needs to be in that, <laughs> in that space to keep the peace. But what I am saying is that we haven't done a good job as a society of saying, let's really deal with real systemic issues mm-hmm. and not throw police at solving all of those problems. Because what, what, we see is that it's, it's created uh, unnecessary level of contact. Um, like you said, when you talked about the quotas, you know, instead of saying, okay, as an officer, how are you um, responding to a community doesn't necessarily, I mean, I mean, sometimes if you have no arrests and no uh, <laughs> uh, points of contact, maybe that's a good day. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. Because nobody, you know, <laughs> that's what they, I, I say that myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 it versus a situation where an officer is like, okay, you know, like in New York City when there was, you know, like the stop and frisk stuff, it's like, okay, you you're you're creating a situation where it could potentially be one dangerous for the officer and dangerous for the individual that's being stopped. I mean, if I'm walking down the street as an average citizen, like, and I'm my tax dollars are going to 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 fund public services, policing, and everything else. I got a book bag on. I might have a certain type of haircut. I might have a hoodie on that day. Whatever it is, should I be stopped by a police officer for no other reason than I'm black and I, mm. in their mind, look suspicious, <laughs> right? right. Um, and, and that varying category. So, I mean, like I said, part of it is is really doing the hard work of saying, okay, what does public safety and uh, what does safe and healthy communities look like? And then making sure that we're spending our tax dollars in a way that gets us to that end goal, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of times that is solving the economic issues within the community or really you know, thoughtfully dealing with the economic issues within our community, um, dealing with uh, you know, substance abuse issues within our community, which to, to be honest with you, is no higher than other communities, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But you don't necessarily see the same contact because there's not the same concentration of of police forces on the ground in, in some of those other communities. And so, like, how do we solve those issues? How do we make sure that kids have the education that they need in order to be, you know, more successful and have better prospect, prospects at, at getting a job? How do we take care of mental health issues that, that folks have and a lot of folks have at young ages you know some some folks have ptsd at a very young age because of the neighborhoods that they grow up in and so if we deal with those issues you deal with some of the issues around crime which then you deal with 
why those communities even need the level of policing in the way that policing is done in a lot of instances um, that potentially can go go left. I mean, like you said, we can do implicit bias training, but like I said, once once an officer gets in the car, um, you know how they're you know held accountable for their actions after that can be a hodgepodge all over the country, and 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 that's why you know the comment was made, you know. Your daughter was out in California. Like, look, you know, I'm I'm out here on the East Coast. You know, I don't know those dudes out in California. Right. <laughs> like what they're doing, and so you're gonna you have that same you know fear. Like, look, you know, it could go left really quickly in a very innocent situation. And so, like, you know, making sure that we limit those those numbers of contact when it's not necessary and deal with the real systemic issues. Um, and have an honest conversation. Bring everybody to the table. Put all ideas on the table. Uh, don't throw ideas out before, you know, folks are really sitting down and working through it and getting at what the end game should be. And that's safer, um, healthier, sustainable, productive communities. Totally agree. And I, and I just think from, you know, from my own perspective and seeing a lot of the conversations that are happening right now with regards to what it could look like to defund the police or what it could look like to restructure what policing looks like. I mean, some of the examples that are out there are, you know, legislative change of uh, removing qualified immunity and Diallo will, will come to you to explain, you know, to get your uh, viewpoint on what that means. Penalties for bias, banning of chokeholds, penalties for body cams being turned off, penalties for body cam footage not being released in a timely fashion. These are just some of the, you know, some of the line items, right, that the community is crying for as it pertains to to reforming what the police, um, what policing could look like. Um, from your perspective, Dave, is there anything else that, because uh, I know that you come from a, a, an angle of, you see the flaws, right? You've said, you've seen, you see the flaws that, um, happen or take place within the police department. Is there anything else that you personally uh, would like to see added to the uh, long list already that is out there in terms of what uh, reform could look like? Well, there are a lot of things that uh, people are looking at to reform. Those things are already going on in police departments, uh, especially with the body cameras. Uh, the police departments I belong to, they have a very, very uh, strict rule about the body cam that it should be always on versus off. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you turn it on every time you get out the car. Um, even have in-car cameras that come on automatically, you know, when you turn your lights, you know, your emergency lights on top of your vehicle, when, it, when they come on, your camera on your body also will come on along with what's in the car. Mm -hmm. But um, I think, you know, a lot is follow through. You know, a lot of things are already in place. It's just we need to make sure we have follow through that we are going to stick to whatever the policy says for if this isn't done or this is done, what we need to do, you know. And I do believe in, um, in transparency because I said, you know, before the, the police department really belongs to the community it serves. Mm -hmm. So the people have a right to transparency. You know, I believe that, you know, Things can be um, released to the public, but they they're going to be hard for people to understand that are not police officers. You can't rush that stuff. You know, people do have to be patient 
they do have to have trust and hopefully trust can be established when things are, you know, when things are moving forward, people can build trust again, but we have to be patient. We have to let things, you know, go through the proper processes, through the proper channels. And uh, at the end, things can be made transparent. You know, what the conclusion of a case with an investigation was that the person gets suspended, did he lose a job? Or are they going to be charged, you know? Right. Um, but we have to we have to allow everyone to have due process. Um, a lot of people think that police officers should get arrested the same day they commit a crime like somebody on the street, but it doesn't it, it doesn't work that way because we serve the public and we do things in the course of our job. It'd be different if I was off of work and I murdered somebody, but if I'm if I'm in a line of if I'm working and I have to hurt somebody or take their life when I'm working, then there has to be a proper investigation to make sure I did it right or I did it wrong. But we just can't arrest people, charge people, and put them in, you know, the same day it happens, you know. And there are steps for that, but because of the protests, the pressure, a lot of officers have been fired, including, you know, six black guys in Atlanta were fired, and we just saw a little clip on TV, and we don't really know what transpired that led to that, you know. And yes, it does not look good to see teenagers being tased, but we got to mm-hmm. look at, we got to figure out the whole the whole thing, what happened from the beginning to the end, you know. But, um, and every everybody needs that, you know. Citizens and police officers, we all need due process, and that's something that we need to reform on the citizen end. You know, that people get, you know, a proper trial, that they have the right amount of people in the jury, both black and white, not just an all-white, you know, jury, if it's going to be a black guy that's up for, you know, whatever crime he did to this person, you know. We have to reform everything, you know. Right. You know, and I think this, this is the perfect time that we can do that, you know. For some reason, there's a space that everybody can get their, their uh, feelings out. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so we, we should jump on it. Right, exactly. So listen, I mean, this all ties back to accountability, right? That's the direction that we're going in right now is a lot of the reason or, you know, one of the main reasons why there is fury across the nation right now is that it's the whole piece around these police officers that are murdering or killing our um, community senselessly are not being charged, you know, quickly enough or being charged at all in some cases, right? We've seen some cases where it's the opposite, but, you know, we've seen a lot of cases where it hasn't been that way. Um, Before we go into, because I want to talk about qualified immunity, Diallo, um, that's definitely a a discussion point that's being uh, reared right now, um, you know, in the community. But before we go into that, I just want to spit some stats right now just to kind of ground us in some some numbers some real numbers so according to mappingpoliceviolence.org in 2019 24 percent of those killed by police were blacks even though they only make up 13 percent of the u.s population police are three times more likely to kill black americans than whites there were only 27 days in 2019 where police did not kill someone. Police are killing more people so far in 2020 than they did this period in the past years. 99% of killings by police from 2013 
to 2019 have not resulted in officers being charged with a crime. So no accountability there. So just with that to ground us on some numbers um, and the stats of what's happening out here, Diallo, what is this qualified immunity that everyone's talking about? Well, uh, qualified immunity is um, where public officials, um, including police officers, but it it goes beyond just police officers, are given um, a certain level of immunity from being sued because of their their, uh, actions that they take um, while on the job. Um, And so, you know, they they have something that they did while they were performing the duties of their, their a particular job it makes it much more difficult to sue after they they've uh you know committed whatever act that they committed it's one of those levers of accountability that's like a one of the teeth measures where you know individual uh you know is able to be sued for for certain actions but certain um public officials like i said because of the the, the job that they do um, are not, it, it makes it much more difficult. I can't say that they're not, but they have a, a level of a, a immunity from being sued. And, you know, the part of the reason or the reasoning behind it um, was to keep, you know, frivolous lawsuits down and, and folks from just suing just because. Um, but at the same time, and particularly as it relates to a lot of the police killings, um, um, it really has been something that's, you know, been another strike against accountability mm-hmm. um, for police officers. And I will say this, um, you know, in situations you see, and that's why I said there's, there's there's a distinct difference too. I mean, even though some black police officers, you know, perform or behave, you know, you can, you will see them behave poorly, just like yeah. some white officers, yeah. probably less so, but <laughs> at the same time, that's, that happens. But, if you see incidences that go down, if a black officer uh, behaves a certain way or is involved in some of those situations, you see uh, much quicker action <laughs> come against a black officer, particularly if it's a, against somebody who's not even who's not uh, from mm. uh, is from a different community. Um, you'll see punitive action come down a lot quicker than you see it, and this is based on national, not on any one specific. Uh, department, but you'll see quicker action against the, that officer. Because uh, I think it was in Minnesota there was a killing of a white woman, um, I think in Minnesota, um, where the black officer was was uh, charged uh, relatively quickly and, and put in jail for that, um, whereas it took a little bit longer um, in this situation. It wasn't because, I mean, because of public pressure why... <laughs> why some of these actions have taken place in Minnesota from the, this mm-hmm. point forward. Um, but part of the issue around accountability, like implicit bias, I mean, um, um, qualified immunity aside, is that there's been a history within our community where we haven't seen uh, accountability around police misconduct um, as it relates to it impacting our communities. I mean, people watched on TV Rodney King, the Rodney King situation, and um, those officers were acquitted initially until the federal government came yeah. in, right? And then there's all these untold stories. Like, like I said, if you grew up, you know, really almost anywhere in the country, um, but, you know, 
you hear stories of misconduct uh, um, by police officers against black folks in communities mm -hmm. uh, all the time that goes um, unchecked. And so, you know, communities have this built up like mindset that, you know, police, no matter how they behave, will not be held accountable. And so whether that, you know, and it's true in, in, in a lot of circumstances, maybe not in all circumstances, um, but perception is reality. Um, and so communities are going to be moving more quickly to say, look, we don't, you know, it, it's the same story all over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get situations like what's happening in Minnesota. And, and you know, I know Keith Ellison, who is um, um, the attorney general of Minnesota, you know, I've worked with him for years. Um, good brother, I know he's going to do what's right in that situation um, because I know how he operates. Um, but in a lot of circumstances, folks just haven't seen that accountability. And I think a level of accountability will give some ease to the communities that yeah. have been either over police or been victimized by by some, some bad behavior of uh, police um, within their communities. And so, you know, accountability is a huge structure because, you know, like community members are held accountable, you know, because people always like to make this false comparison between, you know, oh, you know, there's high crimes in neighborhoods. We're talking about police killings, but you're not talking about black on black crime. Well, you know, those folks get arrested <laughs> once you find out who it is. Um, get arrested and put in jail. Um, there's a lot of folks in jail uh, for doing for for perpetrating those crimes, and and so communities want to see the same thing when they know it's an egregious action. And you know, it, it's not an easy situation. It's not. It, there's not a cut and dry answer to everything. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I said it's really important for everyone to sit down at a table and really have a real conversation about what we want to see our communities look like. Um, what do we, how do we want to see uh, uh, public safety, what, is, what does public safety look like? I mean, I think the conversation is focusing on police, but not really on safe communities. Mm. What does that look like? What are the structures that need to be there to make that happen? Are the police the right vehicle for that in all circumstances? Um, short answer probably for me is, is, is probably not in all circumstances. Right. I'm not, I'm not all the way there. Um, I'm, while I'm listening, I'm not all the way there on the abolition stuff yet. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't uh, undermine it because I know it's an important conversation to have. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from folks what that looks like. Um, what does that change mean? Um, how does it impact our communities and how, you know, folks feel like we get there? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so not shutting that down is an important, important thing. Absolutely. All right, guys, I'm going to I'm going to put a scenario in front of you. Um, you know, if we take George Floyd as, you know, one of the most recent examples of, um, you know, police brutality, I want to know what you would have done, Diallo, or what you would have done, Dave, um, if you had stepped out of your apartment and you were walking down to your local grocery store to pick up some milk or bread, whatever it is that <laughs> you typically would, would purchase. And you came across the George, you know, a police officer sitting on George Floyd's neck um, as you were making your way to the store. What would your action have been, if any? And then my next question would be, 
what would you advise your your friends or your kids to do in those settings? Well, knowing me. <laughs> oh, and by the way, by the way, you're not a police officer. Right. Well, I'm in this instance, if I'm my age, I am now, which is 45, and I'm going to say, you know, I think I'll probably do what you you heard the people in the in the videos doing, saying, "Hey, man, you know, you need to, you know, give that guy a break. You're hurting him." You know, mm-hmm. um, it is hard to approach a police officer, you know, as a civilian when he's, in a, you know, when he's doing his job and he's got a guy on the ground, you know, you don't want to become part of the problem, become that guy or, you know, worse, you know. But for me, I definitely would say something. I would say, you know, excuse me, officer, you know, but you're hurting that guy. He can't breathe. And then I was, you know, the way I am, I'll be, I would say something like, I don't think you want to go to jail for killing the guy, do you? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that would, you know, kind of open his brain. But what I would tell my daughter or, you know, any of my nieces and nephews, I'm like, you know, hey, you're on your phone, call 911. You know, I mean, at their age, you know, if they're out there, you know, if, I, if I'm talking to students, I'll say, look, if you see a cop doing something wrong, then call 911 because that's really the only other person, only the other entity that's going to be able to do something because as a civilian, you don't want to get caught up in that and, and get worse than what that person is getting, you know, because, yes. you know, it's an tricky. Officer, yeah, you know, and, you know, I'm a police officer and a lot of times I'm doing my job appropriately and citizens mm-hmm. will think I'm not. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they try to intervene, you know, I have to now try to subdue them. You know, so it just it would just get worse. But you know, a lot of times, you know, this what happened. This scenario, yes, that was wrong. But you know, in real life, a lot of times officers are doing the right thing, and people knowing things like what happened to, to Floyd. You know, they want to be afraid, or you know. Uh, Mike Brown, they're going to think automatically that this cop is doing something wrong. So the best thing is, you know, call 911. Diana, I'm curious to hear your response. I think for me and, you know, from the... It's tricky, man. The situation is really tough because the question that I have, and it's not one for us to answer today, right? It's when does just talking solve how does that solve the issue or the problem at hand how does you know telling the police officer to get off of his neck actually you know lead to him acting and getting off and and halting and preventing this loss of life and then to your point um you know dave civilians should just call the police call 911 and it's tough now in this time but, uh, specifically, right? Because there's a lot of distrust. Um, but to your point, yeah, we know not all, not all cops are bad cops. So hopefully in that scenario, if you were to call 911 and the cops show up, they would be the ones to, you know, hopefully they would see sense in, you know, pulling, you know, the, the police officer off of um, someone's neck in this instance. But, but Diallo, I'm curious to hear what your what your opinion is on this one or if it's, different at all yeah it you know it's always hard because <laughs> those types of situations are so like spur of the moment yeah i know 
with, with, when you're, you know, you, how you react. Um, you know, like I said, like, like I, I'm 48 years old. You know, if I see something wrong, you know, I know it's my responsibility to to uh, do something about it. Um, you know, I think, you know, like like folks did in the video, um, I would definitely be vocal, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, letting folks know. But, but also I've been really vocal with the officers that were uh, um, around around the officer with the, his knee on his neck. Um, and letting them know you, you know, you're going to just stand there and let this happen. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's wrong. It's your responsibility to do something. It's like really say something that hopefully could spark change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, intervening, you know, physically, like that always creeps into your mind. Yeah. Um, but how that scenario actually plays out, um, yeah, is also, tricky. you know, potentially, you know, um, just as problematic or even more problematic because it could be two dead folks yeah. <laughs> um, in a situation like, like that. Um, you know, not, you know, not necessarily worried about arrest as much, but, you know, and, but that's also like my privilege of like knowing people and like, you know, being able to make the types of phone calls that make folks uncomfortable, but like, that's my personal privilege. Right. But, at the same time, it's like it's hard to, you know, as a grown man, you know, having children as an adult in a community to just sit there and watch something like that happen and not, mm-hmm. you know, you know, intervene. But I think, you know, calling 911, even with that, with the, without with the distrust that folks have, you know, for me is like letting, you know, getting on the phone and say, hey, an officer is behaving poorly. Um, I need a supervisor to be here immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, he is currently choking somebody to death on the ground um, and needs to stop. The officers on the side are not intervening. Mm-hmm. Um, need somebody here now. And then doing it with an earshot um, to hopefully spark um, a reaction um, from those mm-hmm. um, engaged in that, that process and the other officers that didn't have the courage to uh, to intervene. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, it's like, it's a hard, cause it's really like spur of the moment you see something, you're not even thinking that it's going to happen and it just happens in front of you. How do you respond? Um, your adrenaline, your, you know, you know, your, your, your internal, (laughs) your internal workings, you know, like I said, and I'm, you know, and I'm always conscious because I'm not a little guy, (laughs) you know, being six, seven, you know, 275 pounds, 280, you know, I'm always, you know, even though I'm a light-skinned guy, you know, I'm standing like, look, you know, standing over a police officer that's much smaller than me, you know, could potentially be problematic. Like, so I'm always... May not be a good like, look, Diallo. Hypersensitive of that, like, look, man, like, you know, yeah. how that can be intimidating in itself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult situation, but it's something that you just, you have to, like, the humanity in you says you have to intervene like mm-hmm. at, at this point in my life I you know I would have to intervene I would have to say something because I, I wouldn't be able to sleep mm-hmm. um, you know having been there and not done something and knowing a man's life was taken right before me and I didn't do anything and it's the same thing if something if I saw any situation where you know I felt like I it was it was my responsibility to intervene and you know that could be <laughs> my personal downfall but mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, you know, how, you know, what I'm made of. 
any of my, like, you know, my husband, my brother, my, you know, my friends that are male, it's the question that I'm asking all of them because I'm just, I'm just curious to understand um, what's your instinct in this situation? Like, are you going to get involved physically? Are you going to take out your phone and film the whole thing? Like, what, what are you, you know, what are you driven to do? What would you be driven to do? And obviously nobody really knows until you're in that circumstance, to your point, Diallo, it's a spare of the moment thing. Like we could be saying what we're saying right now, but when it happens, we, we might end up doing something else just because, you know, it's fight or flight, right? Like we all have that. Yeah, and, I, and, and, I, and, and to me, I, it's like, mm. it's, I just think about it in a sense of like, if that was my son, um, mm. on the ground with somebody on his neck. I don't care who it is. If it was my brother, <laughs> any of my brothers, if mm-hmm. it was my, you know, you know, one of my best friends, yeah. like, I don't see me, like, standing there like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. please get off. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's different and, now. And it's, it's different now. Right. And if it was a family member and they were out there and folks just kind of stood and watched and videotaped, and not intervene, you know, how would I feel? I would want somebody, you know, pray that somebody would intervene mm-hmm. um, in, in some way yep. um, to help stop that from happening. Yep. yep, yep. So it's almost kind of different depending on, you know, if it's someone that you know personally versus right. not. I hear that. I hear that. And that, that response is familiar to me. It's one that I've, I've been hearing the past couple of weeks from, you know, family members that I know. So it's pretty congruent there. Dave, did you have yeah. something to add to that? Yeah, if I could comment, yeah. Uh, I've actually seen people uh, step in and, you know, jump on the back of a police officer before I left, you know. Um, <laughs> right. So, mm, uh, true. You know, so, so, you know, I, I think it, it just depends on, you know, who's there, you know, what's going on. And, well, I think you know, there's going to always be that one person that's going to do something, you know. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that with all this going on now, that things won't get that bad. Even if you saw the video of uh, the New York police officer who was, uh, I guess he was choking a young man on the uh, boardwalk mm-hmm. and his partner tapped him. It's like, okay, get off, you know, get away, get off. Mm-hmm. You know, so people are, are more aware than ever. And maybe some people have seen things. I know plenty of officers that have seen things and, you know, maybe were scared to stop another officer because they were, you know, not the senior officer or they're brand new. When you're brand new, you're brand new. And, you know, if, if you guys ever have been in a job, you're a new person, mm-hmm. you don't say much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you kind of like, I don't want to get in trouble. And, you, you know, what's... Yeah, and the self-preservation. Right. <laughs> right, and you know that you know when you're in the group, you're following behind what the group does, right? But I think now, at this point in time in our life, people, you know, these new officers, if they see something going on, they know now I can act. I can I can say stop. I can put my my foot down and say get off. You know, mm-hmm. because now I know better. Because this, this is all you know, like training. Unfortunately someone had to lose their life, but we're all being trained now, mm-hmm. you know, on what to do and what not to do. Even as a civilian, you're like, okay, now I know what steps I can take to prevent this from happening again, you know? Right. But, uh, so, but, you know, I'm just hoping that things will get better, you know, as far as, uh, police, you know, 
you know, hurting people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would like to address the stats that you have mentioned. Go for it. And, you know, I, I look at those stats many times myself. I got the same numbers you got and everything. But, you know, I just want to put it out there to people listening that we have, you know, for me, I'm like, we have to take every shooting by itself. We can't group them because there are a lot of officers that are getting shot at when they have to return fire. So I think those things are important to understand. And I'm not saying it's black people doing it. I'm just saying when we look at overall police, police shootings, we have, I think it's important that we break the stats up even more to say, okay, this guy was being shot at. This guy was not. This guy was running away. His back was turned. He had no weapon. You know, I think those are, are important because it also will help us solve these these issues, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think that's important. Yeah. Go for it, Again, And I just wanted to make one other point, too, I think is really important, too, is, like, that's why these these conversations can't happen in isolation. Um, they have to be, they have to have, I mean, cause you look at the number of guns that are in um, black and brown communities, illegal, illegal guns that are in black and brown communities and where they come from and how they get there and all that good yeah. stuff. I mean, there's, there's a connected tissue around a lot of the public policy decisions mm-hmm. uh, uh, that impact all of this. And we need to really be having a more robust conversation about uh, about all of these things together in a way that creates real change. That it's not band aid solution or yeah. pop culture solutions, <laughs> right? Um, um, and really, you know, fixes the the system in this country um, that really creates inequality, uh, particularly for for Black folks in this country. Yeah, right, because we're not looking for a short-term fix, to to your point. And um, that leads me to to one of my final questions, really. You know, we're really, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, and this is what I kind of want to get some insight into, but slowly but surely, it feels like, you know, change might just be around the corner. You know, there have been a number of conversations that have been happening um, in different spaces and spaces that never felt comfortable having, you know, these hard, difficult chats, you know, whether it's in the corporate environment, whatever industry you work in, uh, everyone is really challenging, um, you know, the the systemic racism that has infiltrated every area of even business, um, not just um, what's happening in terms of policing. So, you know, there's a sentiment that this is more of a movement instead of just a moment. How do you feel about that, um, Dave? Do you feel hopeful for change or do you feel like this is just a momentary, um, temporary thing for now? I, I think we are sort of in a revolution. We're entering a stage of a, of a revolution mm-hmm. um, where there will be change. It's, not, it's going to take time. It's going to be headaches. They're going to be, you know, we're going to be getting smacked in the face. We're going to smack others in the face, you know, figuratively speaking. Yeah. It's, going, it's going to be a fight, but it's, it's, a, it's a fight worth fighting mm-hmm. because I think the majority of us want change that's going to benefit everyone in a positive manner because we all know we have to live here together. Um, and I think change is always good. You know, there's a time, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious guy and there's a season, you know, God always has seasons and, mm. 
you know, um, you know, we all we all are Americans, okay, and it's time for change and it's time for peace. It's time to, you know, I'm a heavy believer in you're only as strong as your weakest link. You know, we are, we are all connected. So, you know, we have to get people out of poverty. You know, we have to get um, advancement for black people. We have to get advancement for Native Americans, you know. Yeah. Some of them don't even have running water <laughs> as we speak. But, um, you know, I think this is a great time in our life for change. I think we need to look at Martin Luther King every day listen to what he says and move forward and um you know I, I think we all should be an activist in some form or fashion you know and uh number one the first thing we can do is vote right we live in a, we live in a democracy after watching all these young people protest i say you know what now they can become lobbyists <laughs> <laughs> if we can if we can gather millions of people to walk down L.A. streets and, and this and that, then we can, you know, get these young people to, to form lobbies and go down to, you know, City Hall to Washington, D.C. and voice their opinion and get things done. You I know. hear that. I hear that. And Diallo, what are your thoughts? Movement or a moment? Um, I'm, cop- I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic Um, uh, that there's, that this is a movement, uh, for change. I mean, those of us that are doing this work (laughs) are uh, pushing for it to be a movement. Mm Um, I'm always like, reason I'm cautious is because I know that this is like, I'm old enough to know that this has come before. Like I was around, uh, I was, you know, in college when the Rodney King situation happened and, and there was stuff there. I, I know enough about the history uh, of the riots that happen um, in in cities across the country, or the burning of cities across the country, um, um, before that, um, and you know, watch what happened with Ferguson. Uh, watch what happened with you know, a lot of these other cases uh, around the country, um, and so it's going to take hard work. Um, people are going to have to continue to work. I mean, I tell a lot of the folks. Um, talk to a lot of folks. It's like it's, it's got to be more than just a Black Lives Matter painted on a street yeah. or a street sign yeah. put up. It's got to be more than you know folks holding up a a Black Lives Matter sign. And I'm not just talking about Black folks. I'm talking about other folks. I'm talking about elected officials. Um, they need to do the hard work necessary to create real change. Right. Um, they need to invest in that work. Um, they need to be grinded on that work every single day moving forward. Because, you know, quiet is kept, you know, a lot of these places we have, you know, where some of these incidents have happened, we have black mayors and and black city council members. And so we need to hold everyone accountable that has, you know, uh, their hands on power to create real change and to have the not only conversations, but tangible solutions um, um, put into action. Um, and, and measure those actions over time uh, to make sure that we're we're creating the change we want to see. And so, you know, that's what I'm going to be pushing for. That's what folks that I work with uh, are going to be pushing for and look, looking forward to have folks in the community uh, uh, not get weary um, mm. once COVID is over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, pay attention because, you know, COVID has let us know there's a lot of disparities that exist. A lot. Um, and we need to be fighting on all fronts to create real change. 
Great. Final thoughts now. Um, I really value, first of all, your time. So thank you. We've gone a little bit over. Um, I actually ended up cutting out some questions just because I don't want to take very much more of your evening time. Um, but just any final thoughts? Is there anything each of you would like to leave our listeners with tonight? Are there any questions that you want to ask each other? Well, if I could just say... Um... Yellow, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, I know you've seen a lot as far as, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of ups and downs. Um, I know dealing in the political world is, is difficult, but, uh, you know, you're doing a good job. You know, we need you. And, uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight. And I think this time around, you know, we, we're going we're gonna to continue to move forward and get things done. And, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of your kids can help take over one day. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm still a police officer because I still have hope, you know. Mm-hmm. I still want to make a difference, you know, out there. I want, you know, I want, I want a little kid to see me and say, you know what, but I want to be just like that officer, you know. Um, so it's a battle, but, you know, God is good and we can do it. So, and, I, you know, I just want to say to you, keep doing what you're doing, and, and I appreciate what you do. Yeah, I appreciate you. I appreciate that. And, you know, I mean, I just want to echo uh, some of what you just said. I think, you know, it's, you know, continued work that needs to be done. Appreciate uh, officers that, you know, come into the to the job with the right perspective. And, and that's why I say, you know, for me, um, this work is more than just the individuals, but more, you know, systems um, and, you know, even your background coming into you know, into the police force is uh, is a uh, is something to be learned from. You know, coming from a social worker environment, yeah. you know, is a different mindset um, than a lot mm-hmm. of people that come into to that particular profession. And so, you know, bringing that to the work is is, is really important um, for the community uh, that you serve. And so, that's appreciated. Uh, appreciated. Um, and like I said, you know, a lot of this work is really about you know all of us sitting down and imagining, reimagining the communities that we want to have, uh, what those communities should look like, um, what we want for, for our children and other children um, th- that live in our communities, and, and really do what's necessary and do the hard work, you know, to create real change and not use the police to be, you know, uh, uh, band-aid solutions to real problems that exist in our communities. Um, right. at using the prison system as a band-aid solution to the real problems that we have in our community and really buckle down, um, invest dollars wisely and, and work together uh, to create real change. I think there's opportunity now and um, you know, looking forward to working. Like I said, got friends that are police officers, family members that are in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not about the individuals. It's really about how do we create a healthy system um, that works for all of us. So looking forward to working with folks. And, and, and Tumi, thank you for yes. having this, this conversation. Oh. <laughs> yes, thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> No, not at all. Look, my, my, my purpose here is to create a platform, right, for us to share and talk and have these hard conversations, you know, and I, I come into these conversations not with the mindset of we need to have an answer by the end of the conversation. It's about sharing, it's about peeling back the layers, it's about getting different perspectives, 
Um, it's about having conversations about topics that affect um, our community, the black community. So I didn't think that this conversation would happen, if I'm very honest with you. I didn't think that I would find a black cop that would be willing to <laughs> to get on board and, and have a conversation and talk about some of these um, you know, biases that are that are occurring within the department and but I found you through a friend, so um, Dave, so thank you so much for being honest and for being open. Um, thank you, Diallo, for accepting my invitation to you to come back into this lounge. It must mean I'm doing something okay because you said yes again. <laughs> you know, anytime you can grab me. Amazing, amazing.